I'd like to speak this evening about deepening practice. What we're engaged in here, what we've been practicing together, insight meditation or vipassana, was described by the Buddha as the direct path to realization, as the way for the the direct way for the the ending of suffering and discontent, for the attaining of the true path of nibbana, liberation. And in this it is a profound invitation to us to enter into a journey. This practice and this opportunity is an invitation to enter into a journey which can bring us to the discovery or the the revelation of our greatest potential the greatest possibility of life and this is or can be at least inspiring for us to hear about and yet what's also very true and clear is that it's a remarkably challenging journey to undertake what we are invited to do by the path in the path of practice the path of insight meditation is to actually release ourselves from the grip of the conditioning which drives our lives and limits and binds our heart and our mind to go against the force of habit the the weight of social and family and peer conditioning and pressure there's a old saying, something along the lines of uh, it's only dead fish that always swim with the tide and if we reflect on that we might see that it's true to actually be alive requires us at times to go against the stream of what is most easy what carries us along and the Buddha once said that mindfulness is the path to the deathless those who live unmindfully are as if already dead as though we're not fully alive when we're just being moulded or carried by the patterns of conditioning that are born of the past and the Buddha when he spoke of this path and any of you who are at all familiar with the uh, traditional teaching recorded in the uh, and the sutras or teachings if one could translate that word from the time of the Buddha the emphasis is often on quite a high degree of uh, we could say battle type metaphors and uh, great effort being applied and uh, as a warrior and in fact one of the uh, the classic metaphors the Buddha uses is that to uh, to free the mind is like to be a warrior fighting a thousand enemies on a thousand battlefields a thousand times. One kind of gets the impression this is going to be a pretty serious endeavour with a you know a reasonable amount of blood and sort of limbs left along the way. And uh, there's a way in which I think we can relate to that. Although when we hear this kind of image and metaphor, what often happens also is that because of our conditioning as Westerners, and it's not just particularly Westerners, although, I mean, it can be found anywhere, and uh, East and West occurs, but it seems particularly in the West, and um, wherever our origins are living in Western culture, it can be for us that we experience a considerable degree of self-judgment, of unworthiness, of feeling that we're not good enough. Negativity describes directed towards ourselves which we've spoken about the effect of which is that we tend to try too hard it's like we're already trying really hard and then someone says try hard fight the warrior and so we try even harder and uh, a friend and fellow teacher in America Rodney Smith he once commented he said well if you take a traditional eastern 
meditation practice and add it to Western low self-esteem, what you get <laughs> is concentration camps. <laughs> and we can see how that's true, at least for some of us. When I was uh, first practicing in India, it struck me both this very uh, sort of martial kind of metaphor and how it seemed to create a lot of suffering and I could see myself pushing myself way too hard. Although I'm actually also uh, part Asian, part Indian in fact, and I was in India at a Vipassana centre where I saw the teacher, it was like so hard, so strong, the instructions he was giving. You've got to do it like this. You have to do it like this. You must not deviate for a moment or a second from this precise instruction. And the people who were hearing it were kind of just sort of, it was sort of like bouncing off them and they would walk, wander around, talk, <laughs> do what they like, a bit of meditation. And I kind of go, oh, that's why they're speaking like that. That's why he's talking like that. But if he tells me that, it's like, mm, okay, I'm not moving. <laughs> And there's a certain sort of cultural bias in the way the tradition has come to us that we need to understand (laughs) because we tend to try too hard. We lose a sense of balance in practice. And so what you may pick up from some Western teachers and certainly probably include ourselves here um, a certain emphasis on allowing, on taking it easy on yourself, on not pushing too hard, on being gentle, not striving. And that's really important to counterbalance the tendency to try too hard, to try and force, to try and control. But, while this is all true and important, it's equally important that we don't lose sight of the need for a really wholehearted application to this practice. If it's to bear the fruit that is its potential, we have to really give ourselves it. We have to do it wholeheartedly, with ardency, with ardour. And you know, one of the features of this kind of practice is that no one can do it for us. Not our friends, our loved ones, our teachers, not the Buddha. No one else can do it for us. And there's a way in which we'd really like someone else to do it for us. It would be really nice if we didn't have to do it ourselves. (laughs) I was struck by the strength of this particular urge in in myself on occasion um, last year, I think it was, teaching in uh, Sweden. And uh, I was going to a group interview in a little cottage where they were held just before I needed to go into the bathroom. So I did. After doing my business, I tried to unlock the door and I found I couldn't unlock it. I was lost in there, all these people were gathering, they were probably wondering, well, where's he? Why hasn't he turned up? And I was there, I was playing with the lock, I was playing with the handle, and there was I locked in this tiny little room. And what I noticed, although it was very clear that the lock and the handle and all that was me, or all the problem and presumably the solution were in there in the room with me, what was arising me was a sense of wanting to call out, help, someone come and get me out of here. Although... Of course, someone could have bashed the door down, perhaps, but no one could really help me, because I was in there, the lock was in there, the little knob that wouldn't move was in there. And yet this urge, you know, the name of a friend of mine, you know, just coming, I wanted to call out and say, you know, help, come and get me out of here. But it wouldn't have been possible. It's me that was in there, not him. And yet there's a, a way in which if we recognize the sense of how we'd like someone else to take responsibility, we can actually then see how futile that is and more and more fully be able to take responsibility for ourselves, for our own life and for our own journey. The Buddha said in one of his last utterances before he died, he said, All conditioned things are impermanent. Work out your liberation with diligence. That sense of, what else can we rely on in this world? All conditioned things are impermanent. And we are asked, we are invited in a path of practice to wholeheartedly take on this reality. To not kid ourselves about it. The Buddha 
and speaking about the need for a wholehearted commitment, he said, people, many people live their lives like children playing with their toys in a house which is on fire. Not really seeing the reality of our circumstance. That it is not forever. And he said, you know, we could practice like our head was on fire. I'm not quite sure how you would do that, but anyway, he said it. You know, it's like, wow, how much urgency, would, how much enthusiasm would that be? To practice like our head was on fire. Now that doesn't mean we run around sort of, you know, looking for a bucket of water. But it's like we'd be pretty focused, wouldn't we? We'd be pretty sort of, we wouldn't suddenly forget, oh, my head's on fire, I think I'll make a cup of tea. You know, we'd be heading straight for whatever would be the source of putting that fire out. And sometimes what we experience on the inside when we let ourselves feel it is it is like our head is on fire. It's on fire with craving and it's on fire with fear and anger and confusion and pressure and stress and all these things going on. And it's like being on fire. It's that painful. So we need to really apply ourselves to this. And the application that we need, we need to direct ourselves in this journey. And the application of our practice is not about trying to get to a particular result. It's not about trying to make something particular happen. It's about being awake and aware and as fully conscious in as many moments and as many circumstances and situations through the whole of our day as is possible. Without setting up an idea of how much it should be. And yet, see, how much can it be? How much can it be that one is awake, that one is present? Of course, sometimes we're kind of in touch with that thing. Of, wow, how, how, how awake can I be? How much can I really Notice what's happening. How, how fully can I be there as I squeeze the toothpaste tube and see that little white sort of cylinder of something just mysteriously appear at the end of it. It's like, wow, you know, <laughs> can I really be there as that happens? Or is it just, you know, and uh, you end up with half of it in a nostril if we're not paying attention? <laughs> I don't know if it happens to you, but sometimes I find myself with the toothpaste on my lip and I think, oh, I didn't actually pay attention when I put it in my mouth. <laughs> Sometimes it's like that, we're really remembering that focus, and other times it's different, isn't it? Someone commented in the group today, and it's not unusual for people to recognise and reflect on the fact that what happens here, what they were seeing on the retreat, is pretty much what they see themselves doing in their life. And it's so. The difference is, of course, is here that we see ourselves doing it. That's a big difference. We're still doing the same thing, but we see ourselves doing it. And then we have some, some possibilities open up once we start to recognise what's happening. We have the opportunity to actually release ourselves from the hold of those patterns and behaviours which don't serve us. And to cultivate those things which do serve us, which do contribute to our well-being. And through observing through paying attention to our experience, we begin to notice those things which serve us and those which don't. And this basic discernment is what we could call the kindergarten of wisdom, the basis in which we start to understand that actually being caught up in anxious dwelling on the future doesn't solve the future and it doesn't make the present very pleasant either. We see that. Or getting caught up in... Um, and reactivity to something that's happening that we don't like doesn't take the thing away that we don't like and it doesn't make it feel any better. It makes it worse. We see those things and we see that that equanimity, that actually just making space for what's there actually allows a sense of healing, of calming, of, of releasing of the, the heat and the pressure. We notice these things just by seeing that when they occur it's like this. When something else occurs it's like this. And that naturally inclines us towards that which is wholesome and beneficial and away from that which doesn't actually serve our well-being. So it's not like we're saying that everything is equal and that um, actually sort of misery, suffering, anger and um, hatred are just as wholesome 
as as well-being, as as peace, as kindness. But seeing when they arise, accepting them, yes. But also recognizing what it is we wish to cultivate, what it is we wish we wish to bring into our lives. So we start to see this. We start to recognize this some of the time. Sometimes we're interested. We're noticing. We're engaged in this process of actually becoming more awake and conscious, seeing what's really true, what's really happening. But sometimes, as person commented, we see the patterns of our life that are not the ones that serve us so much. And uh, one of the primary patterns of life that most of us experience when we're not so conscious is the tendency to seek comfort, the tendency to not actually want to face the discomfort that is sometimes inherent in our experience. We don't want to face ourselves and what it feels like to just to be with me, just as I am. Because it's not easy sometimes. It's scary, it's unflattering, it's lonely, it's unpredictable. We don't really want sometimes. We forget the importance. We don't really want that wholeheartedly. We forget that we do. And what we see is we start looking for something else to engage with. We start looking away from the immediacy of our experience, from being present, and we actually kind of sign up for distraction. We sign up for escape, for getting away from it. We we, we suddenly have the thought, gosh, I wonder if there's anything important on the notice board. And we go. (laughs) Because, I mean, it was only ten minutes ago that we last checked, and maybe there's a new important notice. And we go, we're looking, and there isn't a new important notice. But there's all these old notices that... Just in case they've changed since we last read them, we think, I'd better read this again. Now, really, is there, is there a sitting after the walking and then a walking after the sitting? Is that, you know, is that how it was on the schedule? No, surely they're not still going to do it today. And there's a way in which we're getting really engaged with this schedule. And we know it back to front. We could write it out in our sleep. Or we're, we're, um, we're making a cup of tea after, after the meal and we notice the, the tea bags have got this label and it's sort of, we're trying to read the details on it's like any entertainment <laughs> tea bag labels get exciting on retreat <laughs> or people are examining the boxes of tea bags you know? <laughs> entertainment it's, you know who needs 24 challenge panels of um, TV when you've got 24 flavours of herbal tea <laughs> it's all relative really isn't it but just see how we get drawn in that way. Drawn towards something that will take us away from the sometimes rather stark or just unremittingly true fact of being. It's kind of, it's almost hard to say with a simple, just, it's like that. Even when it's not particularly bad or difficult, it's hard still just to stay there. We notice ourselves seeking for not just distraction but comfort or entertainment in some other form. I notice myself often uh, on retreat when not really paying careful attention I'll start heading for the tea urn and not just a cup of tea but two spoonfuls of sugar. Yeah, it's going to be really sweet and yum. And it's like comfort, comfort food. You don't have the option of raiding the refrigerator which is what we might take when we're at home. So, you know, what's on offer? Well, that's on offer. Or maybe I'll go cuddle up to a radiator. You know? <laughs> or have a long sh- have long showers on the retreat. It's great, isn't it? Oh, all that hot water. <laughs> Surely there's plenty more for everyone else. I'll just enjoy this a bit longer. I'm clean, but, you know, this is nice. I'm just being with the bare experience. Pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> Got to be good practice. And yet we see how we're just kind of trying to pad our life. Not to judge or blame ourselves if we see it happening, but see what's going on, how there's a way in which we're shying away from the truth of what's going on when we don't manipulate and adjust and (coughs) pad it out. Of course, one of the biggest directions of escape that we, we see 
is into the past and the future. We get away from where we are through the attraction or the pull of past and future. And again, this process saps the vitality of our life and our practice. When we live in the past and the future, we are less than fully alive. The Buddha was once asked, by a, uh, a visitor who came upon the Buddha with a large um, contingent of monks and nuns sitting in meditation. He was asked, why is it that your followers are so radiant, so beautiful, so full of light? And the Buddha responded, he said, my followers are so radiant because they do not dwell upon the past. They do not hanker after the future. That is why they are so radiant. Those that dwell upon the past or hanker after the future are like green reeds cut down that wither in the midday sun. It's like the, the very juice and vitality of our life is dissipated out. It's lost to us when we're not present, when we're not connected, when we're not awake. And so our injunction, our practice is, is just this, again and again. You hear it, we say it, we hear it, we forget it. But we <laughs> get reminded again and again by ourselves and each other. Be present, be awake. Harness that precious juice of life. That conscious, awake, alive, aware being that's happening right now. Don't let it slip through your fingers. Don't willfully give it away. And so, to do so, we're asked to give ourselves, to surrender, we could say, to life. And here on a retreat, we're asked to surrender to a schedule that says, do this, do that, do this, do that. Not because we like telling you what to do, but because when you give yourself to a form that says this, walk, stand, eat, rest, sit, walk, stand, eat, rest. You know, brief entertainment, distraction and the Dharma talk in the evening. And, you know, the meals <laughs> being the high point of the day. It's all there. When you give yourself to that, we, by giving ourselves to that, we take away or we relinquish, hopefully voluntarily, we relinquish the avenues of escape, of departure, of dissipating. And we support ourselves in noticing what's happening in all parts of the day, in all experiences, in all moments. So it's not actually, surrender isn't about passivity any more than acceptance is about passivity. Accepting what's happening, surrendering to what's happening. It's not about coming, becoming some kind of you know, overcooked vegetable sitting there just getting run over by life. <laughs> it's about actually accepting, acknowledging what is here and undertaking the remarkable effort actually that's required to be here, to meet it. Because so many forces within us and around us are taking us away. To actually be still is one of the most demanding acts we can undertake in our life. To do nothing is harder than all the habitual conditioned reactivities that we could be enacting, all the things we could be doing. In any given moment it's harder to simply be present and not react than it is to be carried away by our reactions and our busyness and our doing. But, in our life, as its wholeness and its fullness, it's much harder ultimately to live unconsciously than to live consciously. And it's like one makes the investment of that immediate effort in each moment that one is able to. Effort that it is. Because one understands that actually this is ultimately less effort than living battered by conditioning, driven by unrestrained forces of fear, of anger, of craving, of confusion that are so painful to be bound by, so limiting to be controlled by. To recognize and to release the patterning of the mind. 
And there's ways in which we can see it that just repeat themselves to the degree that they become sort of sort of fables within the, the tradition. And there's, there's a few I'd like to just bring your attention to in case you're noticing them. We have the tendency in the mind when we don't like something or something is irritating to kind of reject, to judge, to blame, to condemn. We notice it. And uh, sometimes what happens is we notice that it happens to be personified in some particular person. We're sitting there and somebody sort of moves or makes a noise that seems distracting or irritating just when we thought our meditation was going on. I did that on purpose. <laughs> and then later on we're walking through the hall and they bump our shoulder and it's like, what's going on? This person's out, you know, or, or they, they open the window in the room and let a cold draft onto us. And it's like we start to see this person and then we see that they can't, that the clothes they wear are just kind of off and you know there's, there's something they're just not mindful at all and it's like there's, there's a way in which you know there's a word for this it's called the Vipassana Villa it's like the, the cause of all the problems is this person and everything they do is just what should not be done now this is what should not be done this, this is the example of it and it's the way the mind just creates this whole story and projects it onto something or something Sometimes we do it to ourselves, we make ourselves the villain. But you see how it's kind of just a fabricated story. It's just someone doing what they do. It's just what's going on. And at the end of the retreat we might speak to them and find out they're just actually just like a human being like ourselves. <laughs> Surprise. Mm-hmm. Or we might hear them speaking in a group and realize, wow, they're really going through something. It's difficult. No wonder they're sort of manifesting in a way that's a little different to me. I feel compassion or, or we feel like, wow, respectful. Look at what they're doing, this person. And we can see also there's a tendency to, to be attracted towards things. See our mind do this and we're attracted towards things. We like things. Again, this shows itself in some times predictable ways. We're, we're, we're in, the, in the dining room and we look up and we just see something looks kind of nice. And they just <laughs> happen to be looking our way and we think, oh, nice. <laughs> and then we uh, find ourselves, uh, <laughs> if we come to the meditation hall, that our, our slippers are beside there. <laughs> and we start to think, oh, what a nice person. <laughs> and you know, we start imagining this scenario of how we might talk to them after the retreat and how maybe we'd go for a walk and then before you know it, you know, it's a, you know, a house, a mortgage, three children and <laughs> this whole thing has happened, you know, it's called a Vipassana romance. It's like our mind is it's so much looking for something nice, something lovely, that, that sort of fulfilment in that way, we create this whole thing. When we see it like this, of course, you know, we might talk to them after the retreat and the moment they open their mouth, we, we hear them, we say, oh no. This is, not, this is not the person who's going to solve my life. You know? And that. Or we realize they haven't actually even noticed us. You know, we've been there thinking this is this whole mutual thing going on. And we see how our mind proliferates with story. The Vipassana Rana. And the third one, less known, less, um, less frequently commented on in Dharma talks. <laughs> is the one in which um, we find ourselves coming up with some remarkably good ideas for something we want to do, some business project or some creative activity or or, or something. It's like it's, it's what uh, been called the parsimonia. Like suddenly we know how to solve everything in the world, or we know what has to be done to produce the greatest work of art since Michelangelo. You know. And we start planning how to do it, or the remarkable autobiography we're going to sort of even think, well, maybe just after sitting at 9.30, I'll just slip down and begin, begin this masterwork. And again, it's like this, this kind of delusion of grandeur, or of, of possibility. All these things have, I mean, there, there may be some truth in these things. There, there is a, possibly sometimes some gem of, of genuine value in such a movement, but it's kind of like it gets overblown, we get caught and carried away by it. And seeing this tendency of mind 
to get caught and carried away by what is initially just a reaction to something. It's pleasant, it's unpleasant, or it's attractive in some way. Or it gives us something entertaining to do when otherwise things are a little bit boring or not stimulating. Seeing this process of mind, how we just build things up from nothing, (coughs) from nothing almost. And how at some point they're punctured. And it's just like, where did all that go? Where did that story go? Suddenly we just see it's empty. There's nothing really of substance in it, nothing of meaning. And we realize that we've been sucked in. And there's this expression, you know, we talk about sucked in in New Zealand, we talk about being sucked in, chewed up, and spat out. And it's kind of it's like, it's like that in the mind, isn't it? We're just doing our thing, paying attention, and suddenly sucked in, and then, and then we just, here I am. Oh, what happened? It's like we've just been put, in, put through the laundry cycle in the washing machine, you know. Unsatisfactory, that is. To be bound. To be lost in the story. To be unconscious. We need to see this. Because only by seeing it for ourselves will we begin to be disenchanted with it. Will the attractions it presents become less? Will the tendency to kind of resort to the to the comfort option, the complacency option, that, that I think I just want to curl up and you know, pull the covers up over my head and just go to sleep. Only will that that will only really be addressed if we if we see <coughs> for ourselves how unsatisfactory it is to live unconsciously and bound. And sometimes in the middle of a retreat, this fourth evening is the, pretty much just after the midpoint of the retreat, we're starting to settle in, we're feeling more established, it's like we're in the flow. The retreat starts to become the flow, starts to become the current. We've mostly figured out how to do it now. Well, we're getting there anyway, we're close. Pretty soon we're going to have it cracked and, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to know how to do it. And people sometimes report something shifts for them and think, ah. I've got it. Now I know how to do it. And then we kind of want to hang out there. We kind of want to relax. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I can sit alright for most of 45 minutes or I can feel my feet when I walk. Yeah, that's good. I can <laughs> hang out with this. This is, this is progress. It's got to be. And uh, that'll do. Yeah. <laughs> that was hard work, you know. Surely it's time to just enjoy it. Isn't that what hard work is for? So, you know, you put in all the effort and then you get to enjoy the cake. But there's a way in which we kind of, in that complacency or just wanting to kick back, we can sometimes lose touch with or forget the deeper aspirations of our life, the, those things that are more significant or important than just being comfortable, that bring us to a retreat, to sustain us in this practice, and that yet we sometimes just lose touch with, lose sight of. To settle for the familiar, the comfortable, just a little relief, you know. I would have liked to, you know, find truth or become awakened, but actually just comfortable 45 minutes without too much pain, that would do. Totally human, totally understandable, isn't it? And yet, we don't have to surrender in that way. We don't have to surrender to remarkable opportunity that is offered us by this life. To take some time to reflect on what's really important. What brings you here, now? Why is it that you would wish to pay attention or to transform your life? To remember the the depths of care for our own well-being the aspiration to seek our greatest well-being, to serve the well-being of others. Remember these things. Bring them to mind. Brings us back in touch with a sense of the preciousness of this opportunity. The Buddha spoke of how the human birth is precious. 
There are so many other things we could have been born as, an insect, an owl, a, uh, any number of creatures, all of whom find it much harder to meditate than you do. <laughs> So we're lucky. You know, we think, oh, why have I got this body? You know, there are some other bodies you could have had that would have been more difficult. How can I assure you? Or we think, you know, if my parents had only been different, if they'd done it differently, then I wouldn't have all this stuff to deal with. But, heck, no one else had your parents. And look, they've still got stuff. It's like we think that if I had a different body or experience, then it would work. But actually the one we have, the very conditions we have, the upbringing we have, the body we have, the circumstances, even the English weather is ultimately <laughs> part, sorry it is, ultimately <laughs> part of the precious opportunity. Because it shows us who we are. And the deepest core of our being, what's going on, is revealed by everything around us. It reflects it back. So we have this human birth that is sometimes standing in the rain. Sometimes standing in the sunshine. And in this, the, the Buddha again, he spoke of having been born as a human being. How fortunate that is. But how rare among human beings it is to hear the Dharma. To hear teachings of genuine wisdom and compassion. Teachings about liberation. How rare <coughs> it is to hear them. And having heard them, how rare it is amongst all those beings who hear such teachings to actually practice them. And here we are, the opportunity to practice Dharma, to actually awaken our lives, moment by moment, breath by breath. How remarkable, how fortunate, how rare, this opportunity. And in remembering that, we, we can perhaps sense or feel the, the, the wish, the aspiration to use it well, to use it wholeheartedly. To give ourselves to this practice, as fully as we're able. To give ourselves to the solitude and the silence. Remarkable power in what we do here, in being together and yet in solitude. Silence isn't just about sort of pinning our lips shut and pretending no one is there because it's not a good thing to talk to people. Talking is fine, talking can be wonderful. But what's important is actually something about exploring ourselves. And when we're constantly engaging with others, when we're constantly relating to others, when we're looking to others to tell us that I'm okay, we never face the places in which we don't trust our own okayness. When we're always looking for someone else to give us meaning or purpose, we never find within ourselves the true and deeper meaning and purpose of our life. And being in silence is a way in which we can be actually by ourselves, not depending or relying on another. The Buddha spoke of the value of independence. Not that we're unconnected or disconnected from life, but that we're not relying on, we're not leaning on something else or someone else to fill the gap or to make the difference for us. We're actually trusting in the truth and the immediacy of our experience as being the ground and the raw material from which all that we need can be mined, can be unearthed, can be discovered. And in the silence, in the solitude, we gather, it's like we gather, it's another aspect, another expression of gathering ourselves in. We don't do it just as some kind of interesting form to make ourselves look strange and esoteric to the locals or, you know, <laughs> attractive to anyone who's sick of too many, um, sort of noisy life circumstances. Because there's something very potent in the process of silence itself, solitude itself. That That it's like crystallizes or refracts the light of our being into a particular quality. The Buddha spoke of this once and he spoke of the value of silence. He said, in the discipline of living alone, it is the silence of solitude that is wisdom. When the solitude becomes a source of delight, then it shines in all the ten directions. Listen to the sound of water. Listen to the water running through chasms and rocks. It is the minor streams that make a great noise. 
the great waters flow silently. This is the sound of wisdom. When solitude becomes a source of delight, then it shines in all the ten directions. The great waters flow silently. This is the sound of wisdom. It's like this gathering in of the light, the energy, the vibration, the vitality of our life. The harnessing it in this wholehearted connection again and again, just with what's here. And releasing, releasing ourselves from dependence upon things. Again, as the Buddha said in the hours before he died, he said, be a lamp unto yourself. Such a beautiful image, like providing a light from within for ourselves. What is that? To be a lamp unto ourselves. Like the very light of awareness. To shine that on our own life. To not shy away from it, to not close our eyes. To its presence, to its immediacy. the inner light of wakefulness. The inner light of solitude and silence that shines from within. And what is it that allows us to be released, to be revealed, to be made available to us? It's not like we have to create it. It's already here. It's in our life. It is our life. But what we actually need to do, and what we are doing, what's actually happening, whether we know it and whether we like it or not, is that we're slowly peeling away the layers, the accretions, the calcifications and solidifications of habit and of view and of belief that bind us into a fixed structure of what we believe we are or what we believe is possible for us. And sometimes, just the very fact of being here and getting through the day, just, you know, however we manage it, and we're not quite sure how it is we manage it, that's enough. We don't need to add anything. Plenty. Other times, or for others of us, and perhaps if we've done plenty of practice before, we actually find we're... We're not so challenged, we're actually more cruising. And then it's really useful to say, okay, so where am I getting comfortable here? Where is it that I'm not actually allowing myself the invitation or the opportunity to grow beyond the limitations that I perceive or create around myself? And there's lots of ways we can see that might show up. It might be that we, we don't like to really come to the late night sitting because we don't want to be tired tomorrow. It's been a long day after all, all that sitting and walking. You know, I think I'll go to bed after the talk. Why not? Hey, it is tiring, it is challenging, there's no doubt, but heck, if you explained to your friends what you were doing all day, you know, well, we sat around, didn't do anything, footy points, we went and ambled back and forth, then we stood in one place for 15 minutes, had some more food, you know, listened to someone talking, sat around a bit more. It'd be hard pushed to see how it is you felt so tired. By 8.30, a little like 9 or 9.30. <laughs> now I'm not suggesting that of course we might not be genuinely tired. But if we're not, we might consider just seeing what it would be like to do the whole late night sitting, the later sitting. Or we haven't, you know, managed to actually do a 45 minute walking period yet. We've managed, we started, sometimes at least we started, and sometimes we found that after five or ten minutes it seemed that we needed to do a cup of tea meditation, or a sitting in the sofa meditation, or a lying on my bed meditation, or a not meditation at all. <laughs> Try it, 45 minutes, walking back and forth. Thousands of people have survived it in the past. Some of them have actually found it remarkably beneficial. Or if you always get up at the end of the sitting. Although actually your body's okay. Not in any great degree of pressure or stress. Try sitting five minutes longer and see what happens. Or if you're always at the front of the lunch queue. 
<laughs> you find yourself, you're walking meditation mysteriously gets drawn in a certain direction. It's just sort of cosmic. And I'm telling you, walking out there in the field, and I'm walking up and down near the building, and I'm walking up and down in the dining room. And lo and behold, it's almost lunchtime. What a fortunate coincidence. If you notice that happening, maybe consider arriving 15 minutes after the bell. Now that would be a risk, wouldn't it? Food might all be gone. <laughs> but you'd probably survive till supper time if that was the case. And if you didn't think you were going to survive, you could always find the manager and they'd surely give you some food if you told them the story. <laughs> you blame me, I guess. <laughs> I'm not suggesting you have to do any one of these things, but more look and see. Is there a way in which you're just not giving yourself the full opportunity here? Or, you know, wake-up bell goes. Ding, ding, ding. We think, uh-uh. You know, why do I have to ring it so loud? <laughs> I'm tired. Actually, you know, we, we remember that they spoke, the teacher spoke about having some exercise. Exercise, exercise. Oh, maybe rolling over in my bed. That would count. <laughs> <laughs> and we hang out under the cover. Now, wake up, get up. We're awake already. Not cowering away from life. But with that, what's useful to see is that we challenge ourselves not by setting some outrageous expectation, okay, I'm going to you know, meditate all day and all night without moving for the next four days, but by actually seeing where the habit and the patterns are and choosing to just explore, not being bound by them. So for someone it might be to say, okay, I've noticed that I'm actually quite restless sitting down. And it's not that it's some extreme pain, it just kind of, I get a bit of an itch, I get a bit of a tickle or a tingle, or I, it hurts a little bit, so I just move it. And maybe it might be interesting just to see what happened if I didn't move straight away. It's not to say you can't move, but just I'm going to stay there a little bit longer and see what happens. Or someone else. I always say that. Every time he's gritted, I can do this. I'm, you know, a personal warrior. <laughs> and never once move, although the pain is excruciating. But we feel good, we feel holy. Stand up. It might be a lot harder than sitting there with the pain. If we're pushing too hard, the middle way is found by easing off. If we're relaxing too much, the middle way is found by just finding a little edge, adding a little spice. Taking it as an exploration. Don't have to win or succeed or get it right. Just see what happens. Wise effort, the full wholehearted application of our life to our practice is it's a marriage between a clear intention and the intention is to be awake, to be mindful, to do what we can to support not being caught in unconscious habit, not being lost. And yet have no investment in any result or outcome. Can we do that? To have no expected result from doing this. No anticipation of success. No need to fear failure. Just give oneself. What this practice is inviting us to discover and to realize is something which we could not anticipate. It is not what you expect. Get that. It is not going to be what you expect. So give up on your expectations. Give up on the measurable, predictable, quantifiable results that we tend to demand. All that is just food for the ego self. It's food for that within us which wishes to stay in the context of the known and the safe and the predictable. Can we be wholehearted, committed, total, and yet without expectation or demand? of result. Right here, right now, this is what we are asked. This is what we are invited. It is not easy. That's for sure. But what it offers is worth it. It's precious. The philosopher Spinoza once said, All truly noble human endeavours are as rare as they are challenging. 
What we're engaged in here is rare. It's not many people that choose to do that. And it is challenging. We know that. You don't need me to tell you that. But it's noble. It's ennobling. It's that. It's a process which allows us to to come closer to, to discover, to realize that which is most noble within us. That which is not about all the stories, not about all the reactivity, is not defined or limited by the stories and reactivity. That is not what we expect. And yet, in its discovery, will turn out to be remarkably and profoundly familiar. And this is what our practice is for. This is what we're doing. I'll just finish with some words again of the Buddha. He said, the reason for my teaching is not for, if I can read it, is not for merit or good deeds or good karma or concentration or rapture or bliss or even insight. None of these is the reason that I teach, but the sure heart's release. This and only this is the reason for the teaching of the Buddha. So all these things are, of course, valuable, important. We cultivate them, we develop them. Good deeds, good action, concentration, rapture, bliss, insight. All this is in the service of something. The sure heart's relief. This and only this is the reason for the teaching of the Buddha. The sure heart's relief. This is the reason that we practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.